0: What is up Bitcoiners? Welcome to this episode of Bitcoin Magazine Podcast. It's CK and this week I interviewed Lynn Alden. A month ago she put out a fantastic piece talking about the most common misconceptions about Bitcoin and she absolutely obliterated them with cold hard facts from first principles. I brought her on here to walk through each of them one by one so that way you can learn about exactly how to dismantle These misconceptions, you could call it FUD, and how to, you know, essentially, you you could even just share this with anyone who is maybe Bitcoin skeptical. And she really does a fantastic job of making the case for Bitcoin, not being overly bullish, but really from first principles, laying out why Bitcoin works and why you can expect it to keep working and why you can expect number to continue to go up as Bitcoin appreciates and people start to learn about it before we get into the show i want to talk about this show's sponsor this week this episode is brought by level level is the next generation bitcoin bank in the episode a lot we talk about the transition from trading bitcoin to banking on bitcoin and using bitcoin as a true store of value and as a true money and that is what level does it's a new generation of exchange where it's actually a bank that just uses Bitcoin. It's like a new age challenger bank. So you've seen these banks around online banks that cut costs and provide banking services at a free or better rate. And Level does this too, but also with Bitcoin. They directly integrate with Bitcoin and they are bringing out awesome features like depositing your entire paycheck directly into Level and then saying, hey, I want this to be 80% Bitcoin, 20% fiat or whatever, or I want this all Bitcoin and then I just want to top up my fiat account so that way I always have $1,000 to spend on my debit card. That is how they're rolling. They are thinking from a Bitcoin-centric, Bitcoin as my unit of account standpoint, Bitcoin as my store of value, and they want to build financial services, banking services for people who are ready to live in the Bitcoin world. So go to lvl.co, check out Level Out. They have a super intuitive app. I'm a big fan of their mindset. I spoke to their CEO on Bitcoin Magazine AMA. So check that out on our YouTube page if you want to learn more about Level. And yeah, check them out. And without further ado, this incredible conversation with Lynn Alden. Welcome, Bitcoiners. Welcome back to another show of Bitcoin Magazine podcast. I am interviewing Lynn Alden for the second time and I could not be more excited. Lynn, welcome back to Bitcoin Magazine podcast.
1: Thanks for having me back. Glad to be here.
0: So Lynn, I think it was like three weeks ago, you wrote a fantastic article where you teased out some of the most common misconceptions about Bitcoin. And then in just a fantastically articulate manner, point out from first principles why these are in fact misconceptions and why Bitcoin doesn't actually have some of these issues. I think it would serve our audience really well, Bitcoin you know, fanatics, to kind of hear you articulate this in audio form and kind of go one by one, just because I'm sure that a lot of their friends and family are, are talking to them about Bitcoin and have some of these misconceptions or concerns. So it could be very helpful for them to have this content to point to, as well as you know learn from. So that's kind of what I wanted to do with you here on the show. So, I mean... I guess before we jump into the specific topics, is there anything that you wanted to kind of say regarding the piece, like maybe motivations or anything like that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I I first wrote about Bitcoin in my research service back in April of of this year, pretty briefly. I mean, before that, I I wrote about it back in 2017, but my my first really bullish piece was in April of this year. But, you know, that was kind of a a quick update within a, a broader research piece. And so I really wanted to give Bitcoin the time it deserved to kind of fully flesh out my view rather than just kind of a short version of why I'm bullish on it, why I'm buying on it. And so in July, I released a big public piece on Bitcoin. And it was called something like Three Reasons Why I'm Investing in Bitcoin. And that was kind of my core first principles kind of outline of why I'm I'm bullish on it now, especially compared to how I was in twenty seventeen. And that got a lot of press and it did pretty well. But of course, then you start getting emails like, but what about this? Or what about that? Or what about and of course, even if they weren't asked to me, I, I would see, you know, debates online or, or comment sections about, you know, some of the, the potential drawbacks of Bitcoin. So I I kinda considered it a part two to then say, okay, instead of keeping answer these emails, I'll put a lot of it down into one big article and try to get some of my thoughts out to kind of address in one spot a lot of the questions, risks, misconceptions that people have, you know, most of them are rational. Most people, you know, they want to understand their investment before they they dive into it, even with a small position size.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I love a Parker Lewis quote. He says that Bitcoin is very counterintuitive until it becomes intuitive and then hyperintuitive, just because you start reorienting your world from a Bitcoin view. So I definitely think that these kind of points are rational to have. And that's why it's amazing to have you know, someone like you really touch on them in such an articulate way. I guess let's just get into the first one. We've all heard this as Bitcoiners is Bitcoin is a bubble. How do you think is the best way to kind of address this concern?
1: A lot of that's understandable because people look at the linear chart and so you just see basically if you look at the linear chart, you see kind of Bitcoin like a flat line that looks near zero and then it spikes all the way up to twenty thousand, then collapses, and then has this big consolidation. And until the last several months when it when it came up and, and retested those highs, it looked like it was never going to get back to that, that previous bubble high. Now this simple fix, you know, for anyone listening, look at it in log form, first of all, and then also draw the halving points on that log chart. And then you'll see basically this like, you know, rhythmic, algorithmic increase in price that looks a lot different than it looks like on that linear chart. And so I think that's that's probably the best answer to look at that and to show that really the bubble in 2017 was not really any different to the prior peaks in previous halving or launch cycles. And it kind of goes through that same kind of cycle every four years. And the only reason that one stood out is because that's the most recent and so on an, on a on a hugely exponential chart like Bitcoin's price, that's the only one that's visible on a linear chart, and that's the only one that, that really caught the broad media attention, whereas the first two happened when Bitcoin was a much smaller asset. So I would just implore people to look at the log chart, look at the halving points, and then make up their mind from there whether it's a more rhythmic increase or an actual bubble. I mean, you can argue that it's a local bubble, but it's not like the, the super bubble that many people you know, say it
0: say it is. So you brought up the having several times, and you instructed people to actually layer out the havings on the the log chart. What's your opinion on the having? The having is something that causes a lot of debate in the Bitcoin and cryptocurrency community. Like does it depict what's happening in the future? Does you know how where does human action come into that? Like how can this thing be programmi- programmably going up in value? Can you kind of give some comments on that?
1: Yeah, so I think, I mean, I think it's extraordinarily well-designed protocol. And it's interesting because it could have been that the first person who invented cryptocurrency, you know, could have invented all those hard parts. But then when it goes to designing details of the protocol, he could have done something totally different and it just doesn't work out as well. So it's actually really interesting that, you know, the other details like, you know, having cycle or the difficulty adjustments, all those kind of details kind of work together so well. And I think that's one of the things you find out about Bitcoin as you learn more and more about it. And so with the halving cycle, basically what it does is it breaks the supply-demand equilibrium that starts to exist in the several years, you know, after the previous halving. So eventually, you know, Bitcoin has this thing, you know, after having it tends to have a pretty strong bull market in the next, you know, year or two years. It has generally a blow off top, and then it has a crash and a period of consolidation, and it eventually kind of finds an equilibrium. And just when it does that, you know, the new supply gets cut in half. And that just throws a wrench into the equilibrium that just developed. And of course that's you know, it's well telegraphed in advance. I mean, people know. You know, they're not surprised by the having. They know it's coming. But it's not until several months after having that those liquidity issues start showing up. Where you know, some percentage of people are buying and holding, and you know, there's a, only a, a certain percentage they're willing to sell at that price. Eventually, that that supply reduction drains liquidity out, and just like any commodity, really, you start to get a supply demand imbalance, and you start to see price appreciation until some of the the cold storage, like hot are willing to part with some of their coins and and kind of, you know, bank some profits.
0: Yep, everyone has their price at some point. And it's just, it's kind of incredible seeing this process go out um, a second time, at least for me, just because it seems like it's something that's programmed, but then you like, it can't be that programmed. So it's just interesting seeing it again, but we'll see next year if it really does kind of fully pan out. I do want to jump to the next question. So again, this is a very common misconception. Bitcoin has no intrinsic value. Gold can be used in jewelry, it can be used in electronics and industrial uses. You know, Bitcoin, you know, it's just information has no industrial or no intrinsic value. What's your response to that misconception?
1: Yeah, sure. I'll briefly touch on the last point just to finish it off. So, I also, you know, when I talk about Bitcoin, I like speaking in terms of probabilities. And so, you know, I can never guarantee what what the price is going to be like in any given halving cycle, what's going to happen next year, what's going to happen four years from now. But basically, you know, so far that halving cycle has played out pretty well. And in addition to it actually having played out, the logic of why it plays out makes sense. And so, when I speak of, you know, the having cycle, I say, okay, this is my base case for what's going to happen in the future. I consider it more surprising for certain, you know, outcomes to not happen, right? So it's kind of all about probability. And that's actually one of the things I'm watching is to see, you know, when will Bitcoin eventually have a, a halving cycle that, say, doesn't work out the way that the pattern did? I think that, you know, that could change some perceptions about it. But in the meantime, to the extent that that pattern remains algorithmic, it's something to keep watching. And, and you know, it's just a really fascinating outcome. And you can, you can just kind of align probabilities around it. And then so as far as Bitcoin's intrinsic value, that was one of the shorter sections of my article because that was a, a deep dive I did in my first Bitcoin article. And so I mostly referenced back to that one, but I still wanted to have that addressed because I know people that may have not have read the first article will bring that up. And so what I really focus on is, is the network effect and, and the scarcity. And so Bitcoin's intrinsic value is that it's essentially a store of value. That is highly portable and has many of the properties of of money and saving in a way that you know is kind of like gold. In some ways, better, right? Especially the portability aspect of it. And so, uh, you know, one of the hangups I had back in twenty seventeen was that even if even if Bitcoin is you know has some value, you know, what about the fact that there's so many other altcoins coming along? Like, couldn't this whole marketplace be heavily diluted? And, you know, even if, say, a trillion dollars comes into the space, what if it divides equally among the top 10 protocols and you just kind of have that diffusion of capital? And so my emphasis was on the network effect that Bitcoin has. So it's kind of like how, you know, anyone can create a social network, but, you know, have fun trying to compete with with Facebook that already has the self-reinforcing feedback loop of already having a ton of users. And so... You know, it's sometimes it's possible to create a new one. It's just extraordinarily difficult. And the ones that generally have that network effect are really hard to dethrone. And you can go down to any sort of protocol, like even not a company, just a protocol that becomes kind of commonplace, you know, in the programming world or in the tech world. You know, once something achieves enough adoption, even if something comes along that in theory is, is better it it ends up being worse just because no one uses it. And therefore, it's not as good as the one that's already kind of widely distributed and self-reinforcing. And so that's why I view Bitcoin is essentially analyzing it in a similar way you'd view any other network.
0: Okay, that was a fantastic answer. So you had a specific order in your article, and I've actually reordered it a little bit because I think some of these are more like 1.0 questions and then followed by the last three, I'd say are like 2.0 questions. So sure. the next one I have here is Bitcoin is too volatile. So this is definitely a 1.0 question. And then not to say that volatility is not a real thing. It is truly a real thing. And it even OGs get affected by it. But at the same time, fearing the volatility is definitely something that new people to Bitcoin often do.
1: Yeah. So basically without, you know, Bitcoin has come a very far way in a decade, a little over a decade. And that's largely because it had volatility. If it wasn't a volatile asset, it never would have been able to get as high of a, you know, of a market cap as it got now. And so the volatility is more feature than a bug. And what I like to point out is essentially that Bitcoin is an emerging store of value. So a lot of people, you know, Bitcoin's just like how like a, a small cap tech stock is more volatile than a large established blue chip dividend paying consumer products stock, right? So it's this basically this 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 new company that can come along and it it can go up tenfold, it can go up a hundredfold, or you know it, it's it might not work out, and so that's that volatility that's inherent in that technology company. And so Bitcoin compared to say a store of value like gold, gold is the blue chip store of value, and Bitcoin is this emerging store of value that is you know is competing in partially the same space, but also you know both of them are also competing against a, a sea of of, you know, bonds and, and other, you know, currency and other, other ways to store value. And so this new emerging one, you know, people say, I can't, I can't use it as a store of value because it's volatile. And that's, you know, that's true because that's an emerging store of value. So in the current phase of its life cycle, it's not a, it's not a conservative store of value. It is a aggressive view that is basically going to keep growing and become a store of value. And so it's, you know, it's kind of that feedback loop where, it attracts a different type of investor now than it, it will if it becomes, say, far larger and its volatility goes down. And so investors can, you know, work around that by saying, okay, I see why it's well designed as a store of value, but because it's young, it doesn't quite have the, the full store of value property yet. But instead it in some ways it's better because it's a growth of value rather than just a store of value. And so investors can allocate with a smaller position so that it doesn't it doesn't throw off the, the volatility of their net worth. Uh, you know, as it would if they put a much larger position into it.
0: I I like the growth of value. And Stanley Drunkenmuller and several other fantastic investors have kind of expressed a similar idea. It's like, it's gold, but it will outperform gold. So it's exciting to them. Can you talk a little bit about the type of investors that Bitcoin is attracting at this point? Because I think that in the last, you know, maybe call it two years, you know, Bitcoin's appeal to maybe more institutionalized investors has really, you know, kind of 180.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's as, it, as it's grown, it, it's attracted more and more investors. So at first, and it's kind of like that, you know, people compare it to the adoption curve of any new technology. First, you have the developers and like the hardcore enthusiasts, and then you get kind of early adopters, and then you get, you know, kind of semi early adopters, and you go from there. And so with Bitcoin, you know, first you had programmers and and, you know, all these people that were really hardcore in, into it. Then you started to get kind of early, early uh, investors, and then, you know, semi-early investors. Overall, it it, it skews in, into a younger and more tech-savvy demographic than, say, gold does, for example. But, you know, there's a, a wide range of people that, that, you know, invest in it, especially as it, as it grows and reaches more people. And then, you know, the this year and the past couple of years have been kind of pretty big for institutional money, so hedge fund money coming into it. Now there were even among them there were some early ones, like Fidelity was very early, and so you know there are a handful of, of you know Wall Street types that were very early on that. But really, the twenty twenty has been kind of the year for the the corporate and the hedge fund investment. And that's always interesting to see. I also think it's catching on a little bit among the gold investor community. I think more of them are opening up to the idea of you know, not replacing their gold with Bitcoin, but you know, considering it alongside their gold in a similar way that they often invest in silver alongside their gold. And they often you know, want to invest in other natural resources, as an example, that they're willing to incorporate into a portfolio.
0: Yeah, a lot of a lot of times I feel like Bitcoiners are telling gold bugs that they're wrong rather than trying to like align where Bitcoin and gold are very much along the same thesis of, you know, natural money and, and, you know, kind of removing money from the state and that value to society. So I definitely am am really excited to kind of see gold investors kind of seeing it along the lines of, you know, with their gold investment instead of against.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I think I think that's I can see why that you know competitiveness occurred, right? Because they're they're both in some ways competing for similar parts in a portfolio, but you know, they're partially they're they're going for different markets. And in many ways it's still very early for gold because gold is still a very small allocation to most institutional portfolios compared to how it was, for example, in the late 70s, right? So I, I think even that even in that space is still getting started. And you know, there are some that are just kind of, they don't get Bitcoin, so they're very resistant to it and they can be hostile to it. On the other end, you have, you know, like you said, the whole Bitcoin crowd of, of, of saying basically like, you know, it's gold 2.0, it's, it's, you know, gold's antiquated, use this entirely instead. And I think there's like a happy medium in, in between them where you can have both in a portfolio.
0: Speaking of institutions getting into Bitcoin, part of Bitcoin's investment thesis is that it is getting to the stage where not one government can stop it. And that is another one of these kind of misconceptions that you've pointed out is, or at least critiques is, you know, the U.S. government will just ban Bitcoin if it gets too big. Can you address that?
1: Yes, yeah, so I think, you know, I've seen it expressed a couple different ways. And the most common way I've seen it expressed is that the bigger it gets, the more likely the government is to ban it. And I hold somewhat of an inverse view where it's easier to ban it when it's small, right? So you can never you can never quash it because it's a decentralized, you know you can't you can't destroy it, but you can make it illegal to own. you can you can ban the the on ramps into it. You can make it, you can put it into the black market essentially. But basically, once it gets big enough and hits escape velocity, it's much harder to ban, right? So once once hedge funds own it, once institutions own it, you know I, I've referred to it as once the donor class is invested in it, that's a much harder thing to try to disrupt than if it was a 10 billion dollar thing that that tech enthusiasts play with and you know you can just be like ah we're banning it cuz it's you know it's using the silk road like all that kind of older narrative once it's it's widely held among portfolios and let's say it gets up to a trillion dollar market capitalization that's increasingly challenging to ban because not only are you going against, uh, you know, the the retail investor crowd, you know, especially a segment that is, you know, specifically holding it to protect themselves from, say, government overreach or things like that. So it's it's a type of demographic really that you don't want to push too much. And then also if you start to get big investors coming in, those are investors that have the ear politicians, those are the ones that donate to politicians. Those are the ones that politicians are generally very careful to disrupt too heavily. And so I think basically the larger it gets, the harder it is to stop and the more that, that politicians realize that they want to have, you know, Bitcoin related companies in their country and paying taxes and, you know, generating profits and employing people.
0: So what is the likelihood, in your opinion, that the U.S. really won 80s and takes an aggressive or anti-Bitcoin stance?
1: Uh, so I think, I think the probability of an outright ban is pretty low. I, I think, you know, I'd like to see Bitcoin get over a $1 trillion market capitalization. I think that would give it more uh, security in that regard. But overall, I think the probability of an outright ban is low. I think the things to watch out more are more regarding regulation around it, like trying to make it harder to self custody or you know, things like that. I think, I think those are kind of the, the, the battles that, that some regulators might be more willing to step up and try to do. But there are, you know, there are people that explore in detail the, kind of the regulatory risks around it or the legal risks and also some of the legal precedences, right? So the Supreme Court decisions in the past that relate to Bitcoin and then they can give a much more rigorous argument for, say, what kind of things you'd have to go through in order to make Bitcoin illegal because you have to go up against certain Supreme Court precedents as it relates to other types of code and things like that. So overall, I consider pretty low probability for an outright attempt at a, a ban.
0: So, and you mentioned this, like one thing that makes Bitcoin unique is the fact that you can custody it rather easily yourself. And also that is kind of a choke point, right? Where Where people are buying and selling, you can stop withdrawals. PayPal doesn't have withdrawals at all, just out the gate. They're trying to have a walled garden with bitcoin yeah. in it. What's your fear of that? That's definitely something that many bitcoiners or people in the bitcoin community are concerned about. So I don't
1: think it's a problem to have some providers have that approach, right? It's only a problem if if it tries to be mandated that that you know to make it harder to self custody for for companies and and consumers that want to self custody. So for example, you know, there's some entities like Swan Bitcoin that, you know, they instead, they they Pretty much recommend self custody. They they give the option that they can custody it, but they also recommend self custody. But then on the other side of the spectrum, you have ones like PayPal or you know last I checked Robinhood. They don't give you the option to withdraw. And so you know I think that those types of services can be a useful thing in the sense that they get people interested in the asset. It reaches more people. It can be good for the price, obviously. But then for the whatever subset of them, kind of research more about it and realize that some of the the unique properties of it. Are really because you can self-custody it. Some of them might transfer out. You know, they might sell their Bitcoin on that platform and go to another platform, or you know, maybe more people will say, you know, critique PayPal and say, hey, we want to be able to have this feature. And so I think you know the market can decide over time, and it's fine to have both as long as you know government is is rational about the types of regulations it tries to impose.
0: Two things expanding on that and i don't want to get too hung up on it but what are the chances that you think that these kind of like there could be a mandate to that you can't withdraw your bitcoin and on the flip side why is it for noob why is it so important that bitcoin is something that can be self-custodied so i
1: mean one of the powers of bitcoin arguably the main power is that it's totally decentralized and so unlike unlike most other, say, cryptocurrency networks, you know, there's no central point, you know, there's no organization that it really go after to try to stop it. And people can still transact in it, even in places where it's legal. Now, of course, they take on then personal risk for doing so, you know, and there's the black market. It stops institutional money from going in, but it doesn't stop, you know, the the, the ability for people to choose to do that. And so it's basically, it, it's people's money, right? So it's it's designed by the people for the people, and so people can self custody it. And there's really not a ton that the government can do other than, you know, legal threats or things like that. And then it's even hard to prove that someone has it. It's kind of actually like when they made gold ownership illegal, it was in the United States, it was really hard to actually enforce. I mean, they had pretty steep penalties if you were found to be holding gold, but there actually weren't a ton of uh, prosecutions just because they didn't, they didn't spend the resources to go around getting everyone's gold. It was just kind of threat of legal force. And so with Bitcoin self-custody, it's kind of a similar approach, except, you know, even more so. And, you know, the, the, I think basically it's, it's hard to prevent self-custody, but it's possible they could make it, they could dissuade major, you know, companies from making it easy to self-custody, you know, but I don't, I don't fully look into the, the, the details of the regulatory. I think there are much better people than me that are really kind of following some of the legislation, following some of the politicians' opinions on those
0: subjects. Yep. Okay. No, that very fair. And I'm sorry to, to dig too deep in that. Okay. So I think this is where I'm moving to the, the, the 2.0 criticisms, right? So this is for someone who they've done a little bit of research, they kind of get how Bitcoin works potentially. And often you hear this in the altcoin crowd, but Bitcoin doesn't scale. How can Bitcoin scale only X amount of transactions, less than 10 transactions you know, per second? How can Bitcoin scale?
1: Yeah, so I, I, basically, what I showed in the article is that there are trade-offs that any payment or store of value system has to make, and uh, the big ones are security, decentralization, and transaction throughput. And so, if you take a company like Visa, they optimize for transaction throughput, and then to some extent security. Those are the two that they're they're maximizing for, and then they're sacrificing entirely decentralization. And they're just saying, okay, we're going to go with a centralized model, and we're going to build this super fast, you know payment transfer system. And that's fine for the purpose that it's trying to do. But with, with Bitcoin, it's instead optimizing for being decentralized and highly secure. So it's the stateless form of digital scarcity that you know is out of the reach of any individual government, any individual organization. And so it's 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 something that in that sense is about as secure and decentralized as you can possibly get. It optimizes hundred percent for those variables. And then the trade off that it makes is that it's not very scalable. And so the number of transactions that the Bitcoin network can do per unit of time is extraordinarily low compared to something like Visa. However, although it's limited in terms of the number of transactions it can do, it's not limited to the value of those transactions. And so there's no limit on the amount of value that can be transferred per unit of time in the Bitcoin network, just the number of transactions. And so that leaves open other layers that can build on top of bitcoin so whether it's lightning whether it's other solutions all of these other layers can come on and say okay we have this highly secure decentralized base layer and we can build other layers that sacrifice some of those attributes in order to get more throughput as for smaller transactions and that you know i think that's it's probably going to become more important if bitcoin does continue to expand in market capitalization and usage
0: yeah, I mean, and arguably, we're seeing PayPal. Even though maybe Bitcoiners won't like it, they're adding their centralized, super fast payment network on top of Bitcoin, and ultimately, at some point, they are clear into the Bitcoin network.
1: Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, as it as it gets big enough, the existing payment processors start to incorporate it. Right, so instead of being you know eaten by it, a lot of them will will do their best to incorporate it. So PayPal's an an ideal example, but you know, I wouldn't be surprised to eventually see all the major payment processors get much more kind of Bitcoin native in that regard. And you know there, there are downsides to that, but it also is, is good for penetration, market capitalization, and de-risking it from a, a regulatory standpoint.
0: Yeah, my take is that Bitcoin is permissionless, so you can't stop all of them from serving it too. Yeah. That's just how it works. All right, next one. This is, I think, one of the strongest what I would consider FUDs out there. And I think it's a very strong anti-Bitcoin narrative, even though in my opinion, it's very wrong, but inter- Bitcoin wastes energy. Can you address this? Again, I think this is the number one most compelling argument against Bitcoin.
1: Yeah, so I, I tackle that from two aspects. One is, okay, it does take a lot of energy, but then the, the question is, is that energy put to good use? And so I made the comparison to gold. That gold takes an extraordinary amount of energy to identify deposits, and then extract it from, from the ground. So in order to get one gold coin, you have to move literally thousands of pounds of rocks and dirt and rubble and all that. and Then you have to transport it, refine it, stamp it, and verify it. And then you have this gold coin. And that represents basically a massive amount of accumulated energy in that one gold coin. And that's why it has value around the world. And Bitcoin is similar. So Bitcoin is this massive store of energy. And all of that all of that mining energy goes into verifying the network, protecting the network against attacks, keeping it as the most secure of all the different crypto assets. And so that's, the big question goes to whether or not that energy is worth it. And so far, the market is saying yes. The market's saying, okay, it takes a lot of energy. It takes the energy of a small country to, to operate this thing. But in exchange, it gives the world a decentralized store of value, you know, that's stateless and that you know gives people that that choice around the world. So I, you know, I argue basically from, you know, from a a virtue standpoint that I I think both that the market states that it has enough value and that I you know I personally think that it the argument is there that it uses that energy appropriately. Uh, And then the second point is, you know, even though it uses a lot of energy, the question is, does it use useful energy? And so Bitcoin tends to optimize for either low cost energy, renewable energy, stranded energy, any any place in the world where there's like overbuilt energy production capacity compared to what's being used. So it could be overbuilt dams in China, it could be stranded oil and gas fields. I know there's a company like Great American Mining that that focuses on that. There's you know, there's 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 all these ways to basically arbitrage energy that has been, you know, in some ways cut off from it's where the, the demand is, and so in that sense, it's not competing with, say, you know, we're not building a ton of new like power plants just to mine Bitcoin. At least in most parts of the world, it's most of the Bitcoins going around and finding these areas of energy that are otherwise not put to good use.
0: Yeah, in my part, part of my thesis is that eventually Bitcoin will be. Telling us where to build the power plants and building in kind of allowing the profit incentives to kind of build out our energy infrastructure. So um, I know that's, that's kind of a moon goal for for Bitcoin in my in my mind, but I do think that it could have uh, massive implications. So the last thing that you put out there is how should I buy Bitcoin? I kind of rephrase this as to why should people dollar cost average instead of trade? I think there's a misconception that, and maybe this is because all the early platforms allowing you to buy Bitcoin kind of shape themselves, you know, in in the manner of like a a brokerage account, rather than, you know, a, a bank app or something like that. But, you know, how should people think about investing in Bitcoin? Why do you recommend DCA, instead of like, maybe, you know, trading?
1: Yeah, so I think I think that's a good point that, you know, they, they could have modeled themselves after banks, but instead they model themselves more after exchanges, which makes sense because at their heart, they're exchanges because they're, they're bringing buyers and sellers together. But that instead of kind of incorporating the, the mindset of a bank, they incorporated the mindset of, of a trading system. And it makes sense because it's a highly volatile asset in, in, in dollar terms and other currencies. So I can see, you know, the natural direction to go in was that more exchange-based model. And but that, you know, it opens up a trap because people you know, they, they hear about Bitcoin. They, they, you know, they overcome enough of their skepticism and they say, okay, I want to own a little bit of Bitcoin. They go on an exchange and then they get into the altcoin casino. They're like, well, Bitcoin went up this much, but this other one is like the 18th biggest cryptocurrency. And that went up even more this year. What like, and so you get in, you get deep in the rabbit hole, of like trading different, like altcoins. And then, you know, you lose money and then you say, ah, oh, it's not worth it. It's all scam, even Bitcoin. And so it's, you know, Basically, by by putting them all together by association, it, it kind of opens up the mindset of of being a trader. And so, I mean, there are say a handful of people that can trade professionally with a very kind of well-defined, rigorous system, if they want to try to skim profits off the top. But for the vast majority of people, you know, the answer is to to buy and hold it. And and you know, if you if basically if you're bullish on it for fundamental reasons, if you if you think it solves a problem, if you think it's going to appreciate in price for one reason or another, then you know, the for the most people, the answer is to buy it hold it as a, as a you know a, a percentage of your portfolio and then if you want to then to continue uh, adding to it on a regular basis and so you know I don't I don't think there's a case to never sell like say you say you put a single digit percentage of your of your portfolio in a Bitcoin and it has one of these halving cycles and it goes up tenfold now bitcoins a, a disproportionately large percentage of your portfolio I think it can make sense to maybe trim some, and rebalance elsewhere if you're uncomfortable with that position size and that volatility. But that's different than trading. It's not, you know, you're not not trying to time tops, time bottoms, aggressively get in and out of the market, get into, you know, multiple altcoins. And so I think for most people, the answer really is about finding ways to minimize fees and to basically just, just build a position and to let this thing
0: play out. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Lynn, I really appreciate your time. I think that this was a very dense and compact show where people can, again, address these extremely common misconceptions. So I have high hopes for this piece of content of being very evergreen and useful, this upcoming 18 month cycle. For those out there who haven't heard from you, where can they find you? And do you have any last words for our audience?
1: Sure, I'm at I'm at I have a free newsletter. Feel free to sign up for that. I'm also at Twitter at lindaldencontact. And I just think you know, approaching this, I guess one of the things I I come at this from an independent like analyst perspective. So there are a lot of people within within cryptocurrency space or within the Bitcoin space that talk about Bitcoin. And so my view is they basically come at it from an outsider's perspective and say, okay, I like to invest in multiple different asset classes, and here's why I am bullish on Bitcoin. And some people. You know that helps them get over any sort of hurdles they had. You know, they, if if they're only hearing voices from the Bitcoin community, sometimes it's good for people to hear, you know, voices from outside the community and to say why. You know, here here's why I'm bullish on it. And at the same time, I'm also happy to say, you know, here are the risks. So it's not it's not something I, I put, for example, 100% my net worth in. You know, I, I dial it up or, or down based on my my own particular conviction. And so a lot of my view is basically why it's a good reason. Why it's good to not have any, like why it's good to get off zero. In other words, like why it's good to have a non-zero Bitcoin position. Even if I felt like I didn't fully was on board, I still want a 1% Bitcoin position because worst case scenario is that 1% goes to zero. Best case scenario is it it goes up multiple times and makes a difference for a portfolio, even as a small allocation. And then, you know, for people that are, you know, have more conviction, you know, either because, you know, they've done a ton of research or they don't mind the volatility, they can always choose to increase their allocation as I have. And so I, I think people have to basically just, you know, dial their exposure to their risk tolerance.
0: No, I think that that is absolutely fantastic advice. And the phrase I like to use is asymmetric risk to reward profile. So that's exactly the one. You risk 1% to potentially gain, you know, 50% of your, your portfolio value. So it makes a lot of sense when you think about it that way. Lynn, thank you so much again for coming on the show. For all the new listeners out there, please make sure to follow Bitcoin Magazine. You can follow me at CK underscore snarks. Please give this show a five-star review and a share. Much appreciated and thank you again. A quick reminder that all of the content in this episode is for informational and entertainment purposes only. You should not construe the information as legal, tax, investment, financial, or any other advice. Nothing contained in this presentation constitutes a solicitation recommendation, or offer by BTC Media, the Let's Talk Bitcoin podcast network, or any third-party service provider to buy or sell securities or any other financial instruments. Do your own research.